so um, I'm going to start the morning off with a um, another. I love I, Dave's always got me on this with the rock star thing. Uh, I'm going to start off with another Karate Kid reference. So, um, who um, does anybody remember? You may remember in the Karate Kid scene when um, Miyagi heals Daniel's son, and he goes like this. He kind of rubs it because he can't. Daniel's son can't move his shoulders. He rubs his hand, and then he just like boom, puts him right on Daniel's son's shoulder. And Daniel's son, for a minute, says, "It's like, oh, ow! What are you doing?" And then all of a sudden realizes that his shoulder is starting. To, he's he's starting to get some flexibility back in his shoulder. His shoulder is starting to move. So today, we're going to talk about Thornton Wilder, and we're going to talk about the power of healing a little bit, and we're going to talk about it in um, the context of Thornton Wilder and healing and art. There's a talk at a Mockingbird conference in New York, maybe 10 years ago now, about abreaction and art. Which what abreaction means is abreaction is like the reliving of a traumatic event. Um, but in such a way that it provides catharsis um, and healing rather than um, uh, rather than reliving the pain. It kind of allows you to work through things. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction on who Thornton Wilder was, who I'm posing to you as the greatest American author, <laughs> with, uh, with a little bit of uh, tongue-in-cheek. The conspiracy to hide him from you, because most of you probably have not heard of him. Um, and why it matters to you. And then we are going to do, uh, this is going to be, feel a little bit like college. This is going to be a little bit interactive, and we're going to read some Thornton Wilder together. So with that, we can turn to the next slide. Who was Thornton Wilder? So some of you may have heard of him. Uh, his most famous work is the play Our Town. Our Town, at one point, um, Our Town may be the most produced play in American history. Uh, at one point, I actually heard the statistic that in like the 30s, 40s, 50s, that era, one out of every five plays being produced in America was Our Town. I mean, is that crazy? Um, so Our Town is about this small New England town um, with this cute couple, and, um, and it's dealing with death and dying. Um, the th third act of Our Town is this very famous scene where they all are sitting in a, um, if you've, you've seen it, um, they're all sitting in rows of chairs that looks like it's a classroom, but it actually turns out to be the cemetery. And they're all kind of looking at, back uh, um, on their lives and earth from this classroom setting, but really they're all dead. So he um, won three Pulitzer Prizes. Um, he is uh, the only person ever to win Pulitzer Prizes for both uh, plays and fiction. Um, he, um, what else is interesting about him? It's interesting about him that, like, he's most of authors who are still his contemporaries, who were his contemporaries, you still read. Right? You still read in school. They still read Hemingway. They still read Willa Cather. They still read. J.D. Salinger, but nobody really reads um, Thornton Wilder anymore. Um, he has come up recently because McCullough, the famous historian, um, or basically like the guy who has defined history for us today as Americans um, through books like 1776, uh, he um, has credited Thornton Wilder with teaching him 
about uh, writing and about creating suspense, uh, which Thornton Wilder does exceptionally. That you don't even you don't quite know what's happening, even though some of the stories will we will read. You might know the background story a little bit, so you, but you'll still be surprised at the end. So anyway, that's where Thornton Wilder is. They, um, at one point, somebody said that if there was a, there was essentially like a Mount Rushmore um, to Broadway, and you had to pick, you know, your four people who were the founders of Broadway and American um, play plays. Um, Wilder would be up there, but he, they said he'd be a little bit like Theodore Roosevelt. That, of course, he should be there, but you're not quite sure why. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, the conspiracy to hide um, Thornton Wilder. So you can turn to the next slide. So why do I think that you haven't heard about him? Um, one, um, he uh, he doesn't he doesn't die this um, dramatic death. I think that's I think sometimes authors in America they kind of come up that way that like they've committed suicide or overdosed or something like that. So they live on in infamy because of that. Uh, he in one sense it's it's interesting. He one sense he has um, uh, religious his plays and things like that have religious um, religious context and religious meanings, but on the other sense um, he. Um, they can also be kind of homely, and religious people might not particularly connect because he, he sometimes switches them a little bit. So sometimes you're questioning whether um, he's actually orthodox or not. Um, and we'll actually deal with that a little bit today. Um, but what I think to be why he matters to you is because I think he has this ability to transcend context. So... Um, it's interesting in the in the um, there can be an obsession in the Bible with context, right? You're um, especially this day and age, you're trying to figure out what was first century Judaism like, what was um, what was actually happening, what did this word actually mean in its Greek context, and how does what we know about that really matter? But actually, those are not the most powerful parts of the Bible. The parts of the most powerful parts of the Bible are the parts that you don't. The context actually doesn't matter at all. For example. Perfect love drives out fear. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when that was said or why that was said or what, what John was writing, who he was writing to. We all know that to be true. Perfect love drives out fear. And that, if it, that has the potential to be like that kind of Daniel son healing on us in this powerful way. So um, with that... Um, we're going to have a little bit of a seminar here in this breakout session, and we're going to—I'm um, going to call up four volunteers from the audience, and we are going to read these plays together. Now, you might have at the end of these corners, the end of each table, you might have um, the uh, a printout, like a ten-page printout. I didn't print out nearly enough, um, so if you have one, raise your hand. Okay, you're going to be one volunteer. You're going to be one volunteer, you're going to be one volunteer, and you're going to be one volunteer. Up you go, behind you, behind you. So come on up. So what we're about to read, everybody find a microphone behind you, and I'm going to assign you a part. So what Thornton Wilder did is he did this as an exercise. Miguel's going to help out here. Um, what he did as an exercise is he wrote...
a series of plays that were three-minute plays with three actors, okay? Three-minute plays with three actors. And this scene, you're, you don't need a lot of introduction. We're going to have the, one of these people is going to be the narrator, and they'll give you the brief introduction. But um, the scene, one of them is the scene is, we're going to read it. The first one is about Mozart, and um, Mozart and the Grace Stewart, it's called. And, um, and it's going to be a scene that's not, um, if you've seen the movie Amadeus or have read things about Mozart, it's not going to be unfamiliar. And if you haven't seen that, it doesn't matter at all. Um, but uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. And you're going you're gonna to listen it. And we're going to read it together. It's going to take three minutes. The reason we have four people is one person is going to be the narrator. And then we're going to talk about it for a couple minutes. I'm going to ask you some questions. And you're, so be prepared that um, you're, not, you're not out of the... Uh, if you didn't get selected, you're not out of the woods yet. So, <laughs> who wants to be the narrator? You be the narrator. Sure. Narrator. You're the, the woman on the stage. You can be Mozart's wife. Mozart? All right. Take it away. I'm just looking for the narrator's part. <laughs> Ah. Okay. Get this up there. This might not work. Do you want to use my glasses? I might. Actually, there's some readers right here. You can take the glasses. Got some right here for you. Thanks. Just in case. Just gave up my age. That's all right. Setting. Setting. Mozart's quarters in Vienna. Mozart is seated at a table in a mean room orchestrating the magic flute. Leaves of ruled paper are strewn about the floor. His wife enters in great excitement. Oh, there's someone come to see you. Someone important. Pray God, it's a, it's a commission from court. Not while Salieri's alive. Put on your slippers, dear. It's someone dressed in all gray with a gray mask over his eyes. And, and he's come in a great coach with his coat of arms all covered up with gray cloth. Pray God, it's a commission from court for today, Emma, or something. She rides up the room in six gestures. Not while Salieri's alive. But now do be nice. Django, please. We must have some money, my treasure. Just listen to him and say, yes, and thank you. And then you and I will take it over after he's gone. She holds his coat. Come, put this on. Step into your slippers. <sighs> I'm not well. I'm at home. I'm at work. There's not a single visitor in the whole world that could interest me. Bring him in. <laughs> now, now don't be proud. Just accept she hurries out and presently re-enters, preceding the visitor. The visitor is dressed from head to foot in gray silk. His bright eyes look out through the holes in the narrow gray silk mask. He holds to his nose a gray perfumed handkerchief. One would say, an elegant undertaker. Kappelmeister Mozart, service. Gracious lady, service. Service. 
Reverend and noble master, wherever music reigns, wherever genius is valued, the name of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is... Sir, I have always been confused by compliments and beg you to spare me that mortification by proceeding at once to the cause of your visit. The... the honor of your visit. Reverend Master, before I lay my business before you, may I receive your promise that whether you accept my commission or not, you both will... I promise you our secrecy, unless our silence would prove dishonorable to me or injurious to someone else. Pray no. continue. Sorry. Know then, gracious and reverend, revered genius, that I come from a prince who combines all the qualities of birth, station, generosity, and wisdom. Ha! A European secret. His Excellency, moreover, has sustained a bitter misfortune. My voice is changing. He has lately <laughs> lost his wife and consort, a lady who was the admiration of her court and the sole light of her bereaved husband's life. Therefore, His Excellency, my master, commissions you to compose a requiem mass in honor of this lady. He asks you to pour into it the height of your invention and that wealth of melody and harmony that have made you the glory of our era. And for this music, he asks you to leave, he asks you leave to pay you the sum of 400 crowns, 200 now, and the second 200 crowns when you deliver the first four numbers. Well, Constance, I must not be proud. There is but one proviso. Yes, I heard it. The work must, be, must represent the height of my invention. That was an easy assumption, Master. The proviso is this. You shall let His Excellency have this music as an anonymous work. And you shall never, by any sign, by so much as the nod of your head, acknowledge that the work is yours. Hmm. And His Excellency is not aware that the pages I may compose at the height of my invention may be their own sufficient signature? That may be. Naturally, my master will see to it that no other composer will ever be able to claim the work as his. Quick! Give me your paper and I will sign it. Leave 200 crowns with my wife at the foot of the stairs. Come back in August, and you will have the first four numbers. Service. Service. Service, Master. Service, Madam. Constance returns in a moment and looks anxiously toward her husband. A visit from heaven, Gangle. Now you can go into the country. Now you can drink all the bohemian water in the world. Good. Just at a time when I was contemplating a requiem mass. But for myself, however, I must not be proud. can these people be? Try and think. Oh, there's no mystery about that. It's the Count von Walsig. He composes himself, but for the most part, he buys string quartets from us. He erases the signatures and has them played in his castle. The courtiers flatter him and pretend that they have guessed him to be the composer. He does not deny it. He tries to appear confused, and now he has succeeded in composing a requiem. But that will reduce my pride. You know, he will only be laughed at. The music will speak for itself. Heaven wanted to give us 400 crowns. And heaven went about it humorously. What was his wife like? Her impudence smelt to heaven. She dressed like a page and called herself Cherubin. Her red cheeks and her black teeth and her 60 years are in my mind now. I will give back the money. You can write the music, but without it for them. 
but without writing it for them. No, I like this game. I like it for its very falseness. What does it matter who signs such music or to whom it is addressed? He flings himself upon the sofa and turns his face to the wall. For whom do we write music? For musicians, Salieri. For patrons, von Volsig. For the public, the Countess von Volsig. I shall write this requiem, but it shall be for myself, since I am dying. My beloved, don't talk so. Go to sleep. She spreads a shawl over his body. How can you say such things? Imagine even thinking such a thing. You will live many years and write countless beautiful pages. We will return the money and refuse the commission. We will, uh, then the matter will be closed. Now go to sleep, my treasure. She goes out, quietly closing the door behind her. Mozart, at the mercy of his youth, his illness, and his genius, is shaken by a violent fit of weeping. The sobs gradually subside, and he falls asleep. In his dream, the gray steward returns. Mozart, turn and look at me. You know who I am. You are the steward of the Count von Volsig. Go tell him to write his own music. I will not stain my pen to celebrate his lady, so let the foul bury the foul. Lie then against the wall and learn that it is death itself that commissions. Death is not so fastidious. Death carries no perfumed handkerchief. Lie then against the wall. Know first that all the combinations of circumstance can suffer two interpretations, the apparent and the real. Then speak, sycophant. I know the apparent one. What other reading can this humiliation bear? It is death itself that commands you this requiem. You are to give a voice to all those millions sleeping. You who have no one but you to speak for them. There lie the captains and the thieves, the queens and the drudges, while the evening of their earthly remembrance shuts in. And from that great field rises an eternal misere nobi. Only through the intercession of great love and of great art, which is love, can that despairing cry be eased. Was that not sufficient cause for this commission to be anonymous? Drops trembling on one knee behind the couch. F forgive me. And it was for this that the pretext and mover was chosen from among the weakest and vainest of humans. Death has her now, and all her folly has passed into the dignity and grandeur of her state. Where is your pride now? Here are her slippers and her trinkets Press them against your lips. Again, again. Know henceforth that only he who has kissed the leper can enter the kingdom of art. I have sinned, yet grant me one thing. Grant that I may live to finish the requiem. No, no. And it remains unfinished. Well done, well done, well done. <clears throat> so what are, some, what are some thoughts on that after, you know, nobody's read this before probably. What are some thoughts on, or things that stick out in that play? Who did he write it for? You mean, who did, who did Thornton Wilder write that for? Or who did, who did Mozart write it for? Yes, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Go ahead. Well, Mozart's like sought after. He's this brilliant guy, and he wants to die. Yes. Yeah. Not very happy. Yeah. yeah. Success doesn't really Yeah, success doesn't. Yeah, that's good. It seemed like art that was very self-conscious about how art was consumed. Mm, say more about that. Uh, I don't typically read stuff that talks about how an artist is trying to produce something and what their intention is versus what their motivation is, uh, what people are going to think about it, or like who's it for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's powerful. Go ahead. I mean, there's, there's almost a, <clears throat> a Faustian element to it, you know, and uh, the, the big difference, I guess, being that... Uh, you know, Faustus only had himself to consult, whereas uh, you know Mozart's got his wife to kind of set him set him straight to give him a second opinion before he goes and, and sells his soul to make this woman appear to be something that she wasn't. Yeah. So, kind of, uh, are you thinking there of like despair? Is that the the word that comes to your mind, or isolation? What's what's no, for I mean, in in your relation of Faust to the to this um, to Mozart. Well, he has an offer to receive a benefit for compromising himself. Yeah. You know. Uh, for I mean, in a sense, whenever we compromise, there's there's a a shredding of our soul and a giving away of a piece of our soul that occurs mm -hmm. in a sense. Mm -hmm. You know, and so um, he was ready to take the bargain, and mm -hmm. then his wife kind of you know set him straight, and he he kept from going down the path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Faustus did not. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, go ahead. This past Sunday over at Marvin, and they performed only the part that Mozart actually wrote. There have been other uh, composers through the years that have tried to finish it mm. out, and nothing compares to anything that he has done. The authenticity of it and the mix of the different styles is so unique that mm. it just you either perform the original that he did and it was absolutely beautiful mm. and nobody's been able to comp to compare the additions to what the original was so what do you think so on that point what do you think of that line um, um both, both the line of uh, only through the intercession of great love and great art, which is love, can despairing, can that despairing cry be eased? That and the other one of know henceforth that only he who has kissed the leper can enter the kingdom of art. What are people? How do people react to that? Very much, um, it was a religion to him, and I, but to my knowledge, he was not a believer. Um, that, but the the corresponding element of kissing the leper is embracing suffering, which Mozart definitely experiences in in this, even in this scene. Like that, suffering produces a way to connect with others and that, that art ties the strings between the two. Mm. Powerful. Yeah, go ahead. I think it's just simply dying to self. Mm. Yeah, say more about that. Well, I mean, kissing, kissing a leper is, you know, contracting a mortal <laughs> disease, possibly. And so, you know, 
I mean, it was hard. It was hard for me to apprehend the story because I was trying to read it and, and reading read it so it well. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I'm an artist and uh, I'm a painter, and it's like you just have to let go of you and of your work and put it out there in order for it to be effective. Mm. Really powerful, yeah. And if you just want to keep holding on to it and bringing it back to you, I, I don't know. It's almost you just have to give it away. You have to die to yourself, and I think that's that very gospel message. It's like death to self in order to grow. You yeah. Know, the seed dies. You know. Mm, thank you. All right, last one. Then we're going on. I just wondered to what extent Mozart knew that he was working with God and that God was working through him. Because that Requiem Mass is an incredible, incredible plea for mercy. Yeah. God be merciful. Yeah. And it's absolutely, it's absolutely one of my favorite pieces of music yeah. ever. Um, and I know that, that that was something that God did for us through him, through Mozart and of all people. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder, um, think, wondering back to you, like how artists in general think about that, right? Like artists and creators in general, like how do they connect with that as a part of their life and their work? Yeah. Maybe is what draws them to All right, I need four more. I need four more. You want me? I, you, one, boom, two, three. This is the better one, anyway. This is even better. You thought that one was good? This is a better one. I need one more. Go for it. Come on up. All right, so this is, um, I, I, I gave you four in your handout, but we're just going to read the first one and the last one. This is um, probably his most famous three-minute play called The Angel That Troubles the Waters. All right, so I'm going to make you the newcomer. Okay. I'm going to make you the mistaken invalid. I'm going to make you the angel. Okay. And Jamin, you're the narrator. All right. Sounds good. Okay, sorry. Yep. What is it? Oh, there we go. I'm the angel. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> Setting. A great pool of water. The pool. A vast gray hall with a hole in the ceiling open to the sky. Broad stone steps lead up from the water on its four sides. The water is continually restless and throws blue reflections upon the walls. The sick, the blind, and the malformed are lying on the steps. The long stretches of silence and despair are broken from time to time when one or another groans and turns in his rags or raises a fretful wail or a sudden cry of exasperation at long-continued pain. A door leads out upon the porch where the attendants of the sick are playing at dice, waiting for the call to fling their masters into the water when the angel of healing stirs the pool. Beyond the porch, there is a glimpse of the fierce sunlight and the empty streets of an oriental noonday. Suddenly, the angel appears upon the top step. His face and robe shine with a color that is both silver and gold, and the wings of blue and green tipped with rose shimmer in the tremulous light. He walks slowly down the shapeless sleepers and stands gazing into the water that already trembles in anticipation of its <laughs> virtue. 
a new invalid enters. Come, long-expected love, come, long-expected love. Let the sacred finger and the sacred breath stir up the pool. Here on the lowest step I wait with festering limbs, with my heart in pain. Free me, long-expected love, from this old burden, since I cannot stay, since I must return into the city. Come now, renewal, come, release. Another invalid wakes suddenly out of a nightmare, calling, the angel, the angel has come, I am cured. He flings himself into the pool, splashing his companions. They come to life and gaze eagerly at the water. They hang over the brink and several slide in. Then a cry, then a great cry of derision rises. The fool, fool, his nightmare again. Beat him, drive him out onto the porch. The mistaken invalid and his dupes drag themselves out of the water and lie dripping disconsolately upon the steps. I dreamt that an angel stood by me and that at last I should be free of this hateful place and its company. Better a mistake than this jeering, than an opportunity lost. He sees the newcomer beside him and turns on him plaintively. Aye, you have no right to be here at all events. You are able to walk about. You pass your days in the city. You come here only at great intervals. And it may be that by some unlucky chance, you might be the first one to see the sign. You would rush into the water and a cure would be wasted. You are yourself a physician. You have restored my own children. Go back to your work and leave these miracles to us who need them. Ignoring him under his breath. My work grows faint. Heal me. Long-expected love, heal me that I may continue. Renewal, release, let me begin again without this fault that bears me down. I shall sit here without ever lifting my eyes from the surface of the pool. I shall be the next. Many times, even since I have been here, many times the angel has passed and has stirred the water, and hundreds have left the hall leaping and crying out with joy. I shall be next. The angel kneels down on the lowest step and meditatively holds his finger poised above the shuddering water. Joy and fulfillment, completion, content, rest and release have been promised. Come, long-expected love. Without turning, makes himself apparent to the newcomer and addresses him. Draw back, physician. This moment is not for you. Angelic visitor, I pray thee, listen to my prayer. Healing is not for you. Surely, surely, the angels are wise. Surely, O oh Prince, you are not deceived by my apparent wholeness. Your eyes can see the nets in which my wings are caught. The sin into which all my endeavors sink, half performed, cannot be concealed from you. I know. It is no shame to boast to an angel of what I might yet do in love's service were I but freed from this bondage. Surely the water is stirring strangely today. Surely I shall be whole. I must make haste. Already the sky is afire with the gathering host. For it is the hour of the new song among us. The earth itself feels the preparation in the skies and attempts its hymns. Children born in this hour spend all their lives in a sharper longing for the perfection that awaits them. 
Oh, in such an hour I was born, and doubly fearful to me is this flaw in my heart. Must I drag my shame, prince and singer, all my days more bowed than my neighbor? Stands a moment in silence. Without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth, as can one human being broken all the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. Draw back. He swiftly kneels and draws his finger through the water. The pool is presently astir with running ripples. They increase and a divine wind strikes the gay surface. The waves are flung upon the steps. The mistaken invalid casts himself into the pool and the whole company lurches, rolls or hobbles in. The servants rush in from the porch. Turmoil. Finally, the no longer mistaken invalid emerges and leaps joyfully up the steps. The rest, coughing and sighing, follow him. The angel smiles for a moment and disappears. My hand is new as a child's, glory be to God. I have begun again. To the newcomer. May you be the next, my brother. But come with me first, only an hour to my home. My son is lost in dark thoughts. I, I do not understand him. And only you have ever lifted his mood. Only an hour, my daughter, since her child has died, sits in the shadow. And she will not listen to us. End of play. The talent in Tyler is unbelievable. It's just shocking. <laughs> went forth, forth. Um, tell me, what are what are some initial initial thoughts? Maybe even from the actors, about what you kind of thought the role was going to be and then where it kind of ended up going as the play progressed in a short three minutes. I find that you, you, you might not have picked it up in the first reading, but it's interesting talking about the, the newcomer has kind of, is a doctor. Uh, the doctor is rushed from the city to get to the pool. It's, and and I, don't, I should have said this before this, but basically he's reimagining the pool Bethsaida, right? So it's taken from the biblical scene. Um, so the doctor has rushed from the city. Uh, the doctor has healed and kind of worked on the, um, on the uh, mistaken invalids, kids. Um, I love some of the lines in there about the doctor um, saying like, what does he say? Something about um, like, shouldn't, like, is it not right to boast in what I will do if you heal me? And that is such a common um, prayer, right? Make me, make me well, for I will be able to do all these various things. Um, what are some other thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. Draw back. Man, Tell me, what do you think? I don't know. I mean, I just, it's, it kind of touches on the other one. It's like the humility that comes from going through like some intense suffering experience whether it's you know physical or mental or emotional and and that puts you in touch with something so that you can really serve other people in that place and until you actually go into that pit into that hole 
where the only other person down there is, is Jesus because no one else can go there with you. It's like, it's like a Rubicon and all of a sudden you're on a, on a different side and the world looks different and I mean, cause I've been through this myself health wise and uh, there is a mercy that you can offer other people that I just wasn't, I, I was incapable of mm. before that. And I was grateful for it. Wow. Wow, yeah. so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, go on the way back there. I thought that the person that actually got killed, how this is a very good reflection of how sinful we really are. Like, me first, you go back. You know, I want to go first. You, you know, let me go first. He gets healed, then turns around to the person that he said, get, you know, I want to go before you. Wait, can I have some more of your time? And you come and heal my kids. Like, I thought that is such a really awful picture of who we really are. Yeah, he nails it, right? I mean, Thurmother nails it. And that is, you so quickly forget flips like that. Yeah, go ahead. So, um, I mentioned before I was sizing the activists, and I don't mean to take over. Forgive me, but... Bodies with wounds are something our culture does not want to see, right? Oh, yeah, and so yeah. this, this scene is so powerful to me because I have a body that can't be avoided being seen, mm. and I take up more space than other people, and I have to advocate for myself. Um, so being up there, just knowing, like, is the, is the newcomer supposed to be here? Like, do I have a right to be here? I didn't know. But I've meditated on that part. Without your wounds, where would you be? Mm. And the body of Jesus, and I don't know if this is ironic or intentional, but you have the picture of Doubting Thomas touching Jesus there, that we know Jesus by his wounds. Mm. And that when he ascends into heaven, it says this same Jesus will come down. He still bears the scars, and his body tells his story. So can I let my body, wounds, brokenness, mm. tell my story, that my weakness tethers me to Jesus and to others in a way like that doctor healing others? Wow, that is so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing. It's so incredible and insightful. Yeah, in the back there. I don't think this is really... Um, Oh, I don't think this is really uh, uh, said that this is a form of healing, but with the newcomer, to me, it seems like when the angel said no, it was a form of rejection, but really, uh, to me, it seems like that's uh, helping the newcomer have self-acceptance mm. and like accepting that wound and realizing it's supposed to be there and to help them accept it and, and love them fully with the wound. I think is a form of healing. Oh yes, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about that. That um, not only that that line about in love service only the wounded can seal can heal, but what about the? Um, it is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. I mean, with my allergies, my voice is trembling a little bit now. <laughs> Um, where did I, I saw another hand? Did somebody? Oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just uh, noticing the parallel between this and like Second Corinthians 12, Paul's weakness. You know, God's strength made all the more. God's strength made perfect in my weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more of my weakness. Yeah. So it just seems there there's a connection there. Mm, he yes. embraces his weakness because of God's strength. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, and he also directly chose, he didn't call the plague the pool 
or something like that. He's called the angel that troubled the waters. And so we often, I think often in our faith walks, uh, you know, we like neglect to remember that sometimes like, almost the same kind of thing, like our weakness or our troubles, um, they have purpose. You know, they, they have, uh, you know, they, 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 they do bring healing oftentimes for someone else or someone else's life. Like our lives are, are intertwined. Um, but sometimes uh, the, the, it has to happen through troubled waters. Mm. Uh, but it's a healing nonetheless. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you. Um, thank you, everyone. I'll just close by saying that, like, um, Thornton Wilder is, like, a little bit of a patron saint of Mockingbird. And I think it's because he's in touch with suffering and he's in touch with healing and he's in touch with uh, the power of God. Um, so thank you all for coming. And I hope that um, I hope you read more Thornton Wilder as you leave. Um, thank you again. Thanks to our actors.